Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord, a podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. Hi, I'm Brian Lord, your host of the Beyond Speaking podcast. And today our guest is Kai Han Krippendorf, who is the author of uh, several business strategy books and founder of the growth and strategy consulting firm OutThinker. His growth strategies and innovations have generated over $2.5 billion in revenue for many of the world's most recognizable companies, including BNY Mellon, Boeing, Citibank, CVS Health, Microsoft, and more. Kyan, thank you so much for joining the Beyond Speaking podcast. Brian, thanks for having me here. It's a great pleasure. So one of the reasons we're bringing you on is, uh, you know, you're re-releasing Outthink the Competition, which is, you know, kind of one of your, your seminal works there. But I really love to get kind of the root of where people come from. So I know that you you said, you know, your your mom's from Bangladesh, your, mm-hmm. your father's from Germany, you live in Connecticut, which is kind of its own world. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, how does that shape who you are and what perspective you bring to clients and events? Well, yeah, I think that uh, I, I spent time in Bangladesh. I've spent time in Asia. I used to go to Germany in the summers and, and 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 Christmas holidays. My wife is Latin. She's from Puerto Rico and Honduras, and we raised our kids speaking Spanish. So I think that that kind of helps me kind of find cultural touchstones, um, you know, touch points um, that is very that's really helpful, right? So I think that people don't enjoy having an American come and talk to them about Google and Amazon and to be able to uh, really personalize it. And that, that, that I think is a, a big, uh, it's something I pride myself on because I think that you want people to feel like they're talking to me from my side of the table. Right. So that's, that's what I try to, how I try to leverage that. So out of Bangladesh, Germany, Honduras, who has the best food? Bangladesh. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I love Bengali food and I've learned to cook it. And my, my, I have a whole collection of recipes from my mom and my kids love, especially they call it yellow fish, which is basically a fish curry that I've learned to make. And every week, one day of the week, we have yellow fish. Nice. Nice. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So, um, so you've spoken a lot about outthink the competition. Uh, can you briefly describe uh, the concept for us? Yeah. So there's like the simple concept and then there's that kind of out there concept, right? So the simple concept is that the way that great business innovators create growth and build companies that change things is by outthinking the competition, not out muscling, not outspending the competition. Um, there's a, a Japanese phrase, which is vision without action is a daydream, but action without vision is a nightmare. So bringing that, 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 that vision of something very different, you know, like Elon Musk thinking about creating SpaceX and uh, creating a situation in which the U.S. government will privatize their, that part of their space program. He kind of predicted that and um, built, built for the future. So that's, that's kind of like the, the simple answer. For those that are kind of a little more geeky, it really is about the way that we think is influenced by our language. And when we can't solve the problem, it's often because we, we lack the language or the terminology. And so if we really want to be thinking differently, what we need to do is introduce new thinking concepts. And I think every strategic concept is um, a language tool. Um, before 1980, there was no concept of competitive advantage. So how do we talk about strategy without competitive advantage, right? Um, first mover advantage is a concept. 
uh, preferential access to resources, a concept, economies of scope, kind of a scale. All of these are kind of concepts. And so I like to think of strategy as an evolving um, catalog of conceptual patterns. And what outthinkers do is they take those patterns, those concepts that are emerging, and they introduce it into how they talk about strategy, which changes what they think, changes what they do, and changes the directory, d- direction of their, um, of their companies. What originally drew you to, to this uh, idea? So I was about to go to business school and I came across a book that was an ancient Chinese text. I've always been kind of interested, interested in Sun Tzu's Art of War and those kind of um, bodies of work. And there's there part of a body of work called Art of the Advantage. I found a translation of a book called The 36 Stratagems. And I happened to be spending a year before business school in the Dominican Republic, in part to learn Spanish and help out a friend of mine who was taking over his father's companies. And I I knew no one there. I had very few friends. And so I had weekends to do nothing other than I went to the office and I had this book and I just started cataloging cases. So it's page in 36 chapters. And then I would just read, uh, you know, Business Week, cool story about Pepsi and Coke in Venezuela and how um, Coke was able to convert Venezuela, which was the one country that Pepsi had a lead in. Overnight, they were able to convert the main bottler there into a Coke bottler, and they flipped the market share overnight. And so what is that? What, what pattern of these 36 does it apply to? And so I'd write that in and put um, a reference. And so over the next few years, I just kept building it out, building out this big Word document. It was just a, a, a hobby. Um, and that became the basis of my first book and my second book and my doctorate work. So um, sometimes I bring that out, sometimes I don't, but at the, at the heart of outthinking are these 36 strategic patterns. Which was kind of your favorite one, your lead one out of those 36 uh, strategies? I, my favorite one is, I call it seize a deer in the headlights moment, which in the original Chinese phrasing is seize the opportunity to lead the sheep away and comes from a story that there's a, a peddler, a poor poor man walking down the road and he's hungry and he wishes he had money or food and he sees a flock of sheep and he thinks, wow, it'd be great if I could take one of those sheep. I could, I could either eat it, wouldn't be hungry, I could sell it, I wouldn't be penniless. But he notices that there's a shepherd looking over his flock. So he puts the idea aside and he's walking past this herd. And before he leaves, he turns back just to see if the situation has changed. And he noticed two things have happened. First, the shepherd has walked up a hill and the shepherd has his back turned. So he does a little mental calculus. He said, what would happen if I took one of these sheep? Well, first of all, the shepherd won't see me because his back is turned. And secondly, if the shepherd does turn around, he won't be able to stop me here in the flock. I will have past the flock, and he'll be now at a horns of, on a horns of a dilemma. Do I run after and capture and, and, and save that one sheep, or do I protect my flock? And so he says, he's never going to stop me from, 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 from stealing the sheep. So that's the concept. Now, what is that similar to? That's similar to Sony, uh, you know, was the number one brand of, 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 of digital music and mobile music. You know, they owned a record label, Columbia, their number one MP3 producer, uh, you know, with the Walkman, the number one brand. And that's something that, um, that Apple seized on when it launched the first iPod, right? Because it knew that what it could do was make it really easy for, for people to access digital music and that Sony would not want to make it easy because their business, they had a big entertainment business and that would put their entertainment business at risk. So the metaphor there is your Sony's music business, entertainment business is their flock. 
And they won't go after protecting this, what they think is going to be a small opportunity and put their flock at risk. So there are tons of examples of it. That, that, that's one of my favorite patterns. <laughs> so one of the things you, you talk about in Outthink the Competition is the fourth option. Can you explain mm-hmm. that to us as well? Yeah, it, it's a metaphor. And it says that there's a point at which others stop thinking. That's represented by three. Uh, why, why three? Because great orders repeat in threes. It's sort of a magic magic number. When I was at McKinsey, they trained me to break everything down into threes and three sets of threes and three sets of threes. When you give a client three, they start moving into selecting from the options. And so what great innovators do, what they do is they recognize these moments where people have stopped thinking. When they say, I've been in this industry for 20 years and what you need to do is A, B, or C, or the key success success factors are one, two, three. You know, it may be that they have the right answer, but it also means they've stopped looking for better answers. So what you do is you look beyond the obvious, find that fourth option. Preferably, it ends up being an option that you choose that your competitors, because they're entrenched in their three ways of doing things, they'll be slow to react to or copy. How do you force yourself into that? I mean, it can't be easy just because we're kind of programmed to do it the, sort of the three options way. Yeah, it's through it's through storytelling, it's through pattern recognition and pattern application. Um, master master chess players recognize twice as many patterns as experts. Grandmasters recognize ten times as many. So that's actually been measured. And so what you see is, if you want to be thinking differently, what we need to do is you need to bring these different patterns, which are these thirty six. So it's sort of like thinking not outside of the box, but thinking in a different box. So what you do is you say. Let me look at my business and let me think about the areas in which I could innovate. I always innovate in product. So I know I've got a bunch of ideas there, but what about pricing and what about placement and what about people? I think, you know, I've used this framework of these eight different pieces. You pick these three and then we apply these patterns. How can we seize the deer in the headlights moment in pricing? How can we do that in process? How can we do that in people? Where's the next battleground? How can we coordinate the uncoordinated? And so each of these patterns married with a part of the business forces you to systematically rethink each part of the business and results in a strategy that's just more disruptive. Now, I get to talk to a lot of people on here that are very, very successful. I always like to put them on the spot. So I'm going to do that with you here just for fun. So when is a time that you've been outthought? Oh, wow. See, we're so... Hmm. I don't think too much about the competition. I don't think too much about the competition. Um, but yeah, I, I have to. Th- I can say for my clients, I can think of times that I've been out-thought, outthought because we often use this methodology, right, to to generate um, to generate um, disruptive ideas. I don't think so. I can't think of one. Honestly, I can't think of one. I can't think of one. Um, See, right now, I have, that's well, I, have, it. I have. I have. No, I got one. Here. Okay. I got one here. Um, so, uh, and this is. This, it's okay for me to share this because this is old news. It's no longer um, um, confidential. But I was doing a session many, many, many years ago for a group at Microsoft. And we were, this is a training program, not a strategy program, but we always like work on a real life case just to make it you know, more useful. And Apple was about to launch this thing called the Slate. It ends up being called the iPad. Mm. And so the whole session was about how do we come up with a response to this new device that Apple's going to come up with? And we go through the whole process and they come up with all these ideas. And at the end of the end of the day, they all agree there's nothing to do because the 
segment of the market, the tablet segment, is a very small segment of the PC market and it's growing slowly. <laughs> and by the way, Microsoft already has a tablet solution. In fact, you may know this, it was actually Steve Jobs's uh, observation of the Microsoft tablet that encouraged him to create something that was just much better. Hmm. So he was inspired by that. So at the end of the day, they said there's nothing to do. And so uh, they didn't do anything. And then they were out thought. Wow. That's a, that's a good one. I, I did not know that one. Yeah. Um, are there any companies flipping it here? Uh, are there any companies you feel represent uh, well this idea of outthinking? Yeah, I think you know, in my book, I cover lots of different, like well-known historical examples. I think you take any historical company that's successful, you could find a fourth option, whether that's Michael Dell selling computers directly to consumers, whether that is um, Walmart building stores in rural areas while everyone else is building them in cities. Um, you know, tons of examples, salesforce.com, the first to sell software as a service rather than installing on your hard drives. But two companies that I really like now, well, I'll share one with you that I really like right now, which is called um, Lemonade Insurance. So they went public last year. They went from zero to $100 million in revenue in three years. And if we look across their business model, what we see is they do a number of things that are fourth options that are things that their competitors, you know, would laugh at and ignore. Uh, and I use that terminology because one of my favorite phrasings of this fourth option idea is that of Gandhi. He said, first, they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then you f they fight you, and then you win. So you want to do something that your competition will ignore and laugh at. And so they do a number of things, but just as one example, um, one strategic pattern that I see emerging now, um, I I've been talking about it actually for over a decade, but now it's kind of really coming to fruition, is this idea of corporations shouldn't only exist to maximize shareholder value they should exist to benefit other stakeholders, mm -hmm. the society, the communities, the environment, the world, right? And so Lemony Insurance views, uh, and this is sort of part of their, their, their statement and their mission is insurance is fundamentally a social good. If you think about it, that is really what insurance was, was first developed in ancient China when Merchants, instead of putting all of their goods on one ship, they agreed that they were going to spread it across multiple ships. If one of them you know, sinks, then they all lose a little bit. That's a form of insurance. That's the original form of insurance. So it's really a social good. So they take that and they built the whole business model around the idea of it's a social good. So you want to buy insurance. In this case, you would be a first-time insurance buyer. You're a renter. You're buying rental insurance for your sink and for your furniture. And when you use their AI um, uh, to, to, to buy the insurance and it takes like three minutes to get approved and you're not even interacting with the person, they give you a choice of a list of charities. And they say, um, we donate all excess premiums at the end of the term to charity. We take 25% to cover our costs, but all the excess we're going to donate, you can pick the charity that you want your excess premiums to go to. And so now we create this like sense of like community and purpose, people coming together um, and there's all kinds of benefits to, to, to the business. But that's like one of several fourth options they have in play, lemonade insurance. Very cool, very yeah. cool. And uh, I know you like to try to make your work really practical. How do you do that in, in, this, uh, in this book? Yeah, so we, I wrote the, originally wrote the book about eight years ago. And over that time, we've really evolved the, pro the process and methodology and just sort of, 
it just learned a lot, cleaning it up and saying, hey, it, it, we should instead of going from five steps, let's go to three steps. Let's do, um, you know, do, do step two A before we do two C, just constantly fine tuning it. And so in, in the book, there is basically a workbook that walks you through it. And um, I always like, you know, all my stuff to the extent I'm allowed to, I try to make it open source. So after I give a speech, I like to put a QR code in the end and people can access the, a workbook. They can access an online course, a list of the 36 stratagems and all of these tools. Because really my mission ultimately is that people are going to go back and the next day they're going to do something different that's going to generate a fourth option. And then they'll email me two or three years later and say, hey, I had that idea. I did it. And now the business is worth that much more. And then, of course, I take credit for that, having, <laughs> having, done, nothing, having done nothing to do with actually executing and all the hard work. And I add that to that $2.5 billion number that you mentioned. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Now, um, you talk a lot about uh, some different concepts, so not just out thinking, but some others. Um, can you flesh out a little bit when you talk about a purpose driven future? What is that and how do you get to it? Yeah. So um, one of the 36 patterns I call be good. And that's something that we started seeing successful companies evoking in their descriptions of their strategies earlier. So the, the core, if you want to look at the research, basically what I do is I take pairs of companies that are similar same industry, similar size, but one is outperforming the other in terms of they're growing faster, they're more profitable. And then you can analyze their public statements of how they describe their strategy. And you can see how frequently they mention these different patterns. And we started seeing this pattern of be good emerge. Uh, so my wife until recently, she was a general counsel at MasterCard. She's left to be a general counsel of another company. And um, their chairman, uh, when he joined, and their stock price has gone through the roof over the last 10 years, he really aligned them behind the idea that MasterCard is at its heart a force for good. And what he means by that is that it's, it's not that we're a social enterprise. Um, we are after capturing as much profit and creating as value as we can for shareholders, but our success is when we reach a world beyond cash, because still the majority of transactions in the world are cash. So he said, we're going to basically convert tra cash transactions to digital transactions, capture our fair share of, of that. But by the way, a world beyond cash is a better world. Because if you think about it, in a world beyond cash, a drug dealer is not going to sell drugs to your child and have that not be traceable. A world beyond cash creates transparency. It creates accountability. And, 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 and this is really something authentically that they pursue. This is not an advertising slogan. You, you as a consumer have never heard that term, but if you go to their offices on the walls, you'll see world beyond cash. And what does that do? It, it engages employees, especially young millennial employees that want purpose. Entrepreneurs want to innovate on the MasterCard platform. Many of the innovate, payment innovations that we admire today are really built on, um, um, on, on uh, uh, MasterCard's rails. It helps with regulatory um, you know, relations. And so um, what, you know, what we're seeing is we're moving away from the idea that you have to choose. And um, I think it's also the CEO of um, uh, sorry, the, the, the Business Roundtable, which is a collection of 100 CEOs of the largest U.S. companies, two years ago, they came up with a statement, which was the purpose of a corporation. And what they said is, you know, for, 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 for decades, it's been that corporations should maximize shareholder value. But we believe that the only way to be sustainably successful is to put community employees first. So this is kind of like a sea change. And 
if you really own that and really authentically, not, not, not just window dressing, but you authentically align your growth with doing good, then that's the best path to long-term profit. Now, I'll just say one more thing is a lot of a lot of companies will create a statement, right? Like by 2050, we will be carbon neutral. Um, and uh, or, or they'll advertise the good that the volunteering work that they're that their employees are in, which is all great. But I think you really want to look at if you really believe it, you want to look at does the way I make money, the way we make profits, does that align us with continually doing good? Or does that encourage us to do things bad? Because eventually your CEO is going to leave, your values are going to change, new leaders are going to come in, and your business model is going to naturally encourage bad behavior. Hmm. So within that, you know, you've got your company, you, know, you were just talking about the CEO driving, sort of, you know, may drive sort of things. But how do you build that great culture? I know you talk about specifically culture of innovation, but how do you, how do you develop that where it's not just the leaders coming with ideas or leaders creating culture, but within as well? Yeah, I think there's really like there are four different drivers that are think you think of it as um, an interconnected system of four things. You have leadership, and leadership can espouse the culture, which is great. They need to recruit talent that believes in that culture and get rid of talent that doesn't buy into the culture. But if you have leadership saying this is our culture and talent that believes in the culture, if you put them under structures that will uh, discourage, that's like incentive structures, you know, what, what, what do we do with people who try and fail? Um, then eventually um, that, that gets, uh, that, you know, that, that kind of um, cultural norms get, 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 get broken. So um, you need to consider these three and the fourth one is culture, which you do that, of course, by messaging, by um, displaying, and I think really powerfully by telling stories that illustrate the kinds of behaviors that we wanna see in people. You know, like 3M, for example, all the stories of 3M, um, you know, the post-it note, the guys told no, no, no. He goes in the basement, he builds it, and then told yes. Same thing with masking tape. Those those stories tell your um, people what kind of behavior we ask of you. When your boss says no, go in the basement, if you believe in this idea, and go make it and then bring it out and, and, and prove your boss wrong. <laughs> I love it. Proving your boss wrong. Great way to call it. Yeah, yeah. uh, so, uh, well, Kion, thank you so much for joining us here on the Beyond Speaking Podcast. It's been great having you. It's great to be here. Thanks, Brian. So for those uh, watching and listening, uh, make sure to check out uh, Kion Krippendorf on our uh, premierspeakers.com and nationalspeakers.com. And uh, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, for everyone here at Premier and uh, National Speakers, thanks for joining us. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking right. podcast. Awesome. To learn more about today's guest, go to uh, beyondspeak.com. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe wherever you listen.